Good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you all to the first M Disrupt podcast. And we have an incredible guest this morning. Um, I'd like to introduce you all to Rebecca Richards, who is the Chief of the Peace and Conflict Office in the Program and Policy Division of the World Food Program. Rebecca is also my college best friend. We studied together um, in London for many years, and she has gone on to have the most incredible career. So, firstly, Rebecca, welcome. Thank you, Ruby. It's I'm great so to delighted. be here. I'm so delighted to have you. Um, and firstly, let me say congratulations on winning the Nobel Peace Prize. I am so, so proud of you. I just cannot explain my delight in hearing that my longtime friend was a winner of such a prestigious prize. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you heard about it. Well, I'll be honest, I'm I'm still shocked. And I have been in shock all week. It's incredible. And it's it's not just about me, it's about the 18,000 employees, but more importantly, about the 690 million people around the world who are hungry today. And it's it's a huge privilege. It's an honor. And, and I think it's important to shine a light on a really important issue. So how did I hear about it? I was actually on the phone to a colleague of mine called Dan Smith, who is the head of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And he was giving a live commentary on the Nobel Prize. And we had an appointment to talk. And he called me to say, look, I'm running a little bit over, but stay on the line. It shouldn't be long. And then he sent me a WhatsApp and said, oh, my gosh, you've won. And I couldn't couldn't actually connect the dots, to be frank, Ruby. And then I thought, what are you talking about? So I went on to Google and it was the news was starting to come out and I couldn't believe it. And then, of course, he said, I can't I can't talk to you. I've got requests for media interviews. And I just sort of sat there in stunned silence. And then my phone started going and the team were calling me. Others were calling me. Everybody was going crazy. Um, wow. It was amazing. And it sort of lasted the entire weekend. And, and you know the rest because you and I were in touch pretty quickly. Exactly. <laughs> it's so wonderful. It, it, it must be such a huge honour. But like, it's also a huge honour for us to talk to you because of all the incredible work you and the food Pro, uh, World Food Programme have done over the years. In our world, we um, work in the health tech space and we often have conversations and dialogue around food insecurity and how that impacts health. And what you're doing is on a whole different global scale. So I'd love to talk to you more about that. But before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, you and your career. So maybe, you know, when we were at college together, you were studying international peace and security. I was studying molecular biology. And I always wondered what job you were going to do. So maybe we can start with what influenced you to study peace and security. And then we can maybe you can tell us a little bit about your career history. Sure. Great. I mean, the truth is, Ruby, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing either. Um, And I always looked at you guys jealously because my parents are both scientists, as you know. And I was in a space that was completely unfamiliar. But the reason that I went into it, in truth, is because I come from a family and a, and a history and a background that is very closely associated with war and with conflict. I'm from Sri Lanka. Um, I was born in London. My parents are from Sri Lanka and they're Sri Lankan Tamils. And so I grew up with that as a, as a kind of understanding 
what it was like to be sort of trapped, having to leave your country and so on and so forth. And I really wanted to get back into it. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to understand. And I wanted to be part of that conversation. That was really the thinking behind my studies. Um, but then afterwards, the truth is I didn't know where I would end up. Um, and so I very quickly started applying for different internships because I didn't know what I would end up doing. I ended up, I worked for a bank, I worked for a retail company, and finally got an internship with the UN and thought, okay, this is the only internship that's unpaid. All the others, I got a little bit of money. But this one, there was no money. But I loved it. And I stayed for two years, which was a lot of waitressing on the weekends and in the evenings. Um, and I finally went into the system. <laughs> You remember this. We were all working and starting to earn our first money, and you were the only person working for free because you are that amazing person doing amazing things. But we were all doing crazy stuff, and you were the only serious one amongst us actually trying to change the world. Well, you know, I have to say, I wasn't um, super starry eyed. I come from a very practical family. Um, but and I have to say I was nervous about it. There were moments where I thought, well, what if I don't get a job? How am I going to be able to just pay my way? Um, and then I think a, a two years after my internship, I had the offer of a three-month consultancy in Pakistan, working for the UN Special Mission to Afghanistan. And of course, you're sort of in your early 20s. I think I was 22 at the time. Went to my dad and said, Dad, I want to go to Pakistan. It's only three months. And of course, he looked at me like, There is no way on earth I'm going to let you do this. <laughs> Thought about it for a while and said, Are You sure it's three months? And I said, Yes, it's, it's just three months, Daddy. Let, let, let me go. And he did. And I never came home. So <laughs> <laughs> that's how it all started because I ended I up being. <laughs> yeah. I think at the time, if he had known what would happen, I wouldn't have been able to get on that plane. Well, I ended up staying and I found myself in Pakistan working on the Afghanistan portfolio, the political side of the UN system during September 11. So I know. So the moment when I have to be honest, it was very quiet, a lot of diplomatic outreach to the Taliban, um, a lot of interesting code cables and watching dynamics and really looking at how the country was falling apart because of the political situation but never expecting that to happen. Um, And the minute September 11 happened, all the eyes of the world shifted to our office. And my whole life changed in terms of my career. And I ended up at the Bonn Peace Talks in Germany um, and then into Kabul on the first plane with the Secretary General's delegation. And I stayed the next three years of my life was, was there. Tell me, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about September 11th and what happened and how your office reacted to it. What were you doing? Well, I have to be really humble about this, Ruby. I was probably the, the lowest ranking officer in the office at the time. And so I was the one that sort of had to make sure the notes were fine and stayed late and cleared up before everybody left. And it was then because of the time difference with New York that I was in the office at the time that the secretariat called through with the news wanting to speak to my boss, who was abroad at that time, um, and very quickly ended up in a situation where we were first told, you've got to evacuate, get all of our officers out of Afghanistan. And of course, I remember holding the phone and writing it down on a piece of paper and looking at the piece of paper and thinking, 
oh my gosh, this is bad. This is really bad. I don't know how to do this. Very, very nervous about it. And then, of course, we mobilized and took our plane in, brought our staff out, and then the whole machinery kind of kicked in. So it was, it was pretty scary in the early days. There was a lot of tension and also demonstrations in Islamabad. Um, so security and so forth wasn't great. Um, but it was exciting and it was a moment where we actually got a breakthrough in a country and moved towards making change and accessing people that we hadn't been able to reach before and really helping them to to change their lives, to stand on their own two feet. Rebecca, in the time over, over, that, over that period of time, were there moments where you feared for your life? Yes, definitely. I mean, I can remember one particular incident where we were in the UN guest house and there was a really loud explosion and the glass in my room shattered. Um, we went running outside and there, there, had been a, there had been an attack on the other side of the guest house. So we were fine. There were minor injuries, but it was, it, it was a targeted attack. Another occasion where we had to go through a checkpoint and then guns were fired at the car as we drove away and we were all sort of had to duck. So, yes, I, I think it was that type of environment. It was completely insecure. You, nobody tells you that you're going into this. Nobody prepares you at that time. It was very little preparation. And you also think that, oh, it will never happen to me. I always had the attitude, oh, it's never going to happen to me. Um, but I got a real taste of the reality of the thousands of workers that make this an everyday part of their life. And they're used to it. And they just get up and they keep going because they believe in the work. And how did you end up at the World Food Programme? Maybe you can tell us how you ended up there and tell us a little bit about the World Food Programme and their mission and their focus. I'd love to talk to you about that. So after Afghanistan, I went to Geneva. I worked for the Office of the Director General. And during that time, the tsunami happened. And Sri Lanka was affected. And of course, it's very close to my heart. So I wanted to help. And I switched to humanitarian affairs. And while I was working for the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, I found myself in, in various countries, but I remember the particular moment. It was in Myanmar, in Yangon. I worked very closely with WFP. Um, so I decided, um, after talking to some, some colleagues, that I'd give it a shot for a time because it was important to understand how operations worked in order to do better on the strategic and the political side. And I joined in 2008, which is... 12 years ago now, and with the intention of staying for a couple of years, and I've been there ever since because it's, it's a beautiful part of the UN. Yeah, it's a gem. You get everything there. You get a, a chance to touch people's lives, but also influence strategy and policy at a global level. So I feel hugely privileged, yeah. What, what food programs mission? Can you tell, tell us a little bit about what they do, what they focus on, and... Clearly, the focus is on, you know, food insecurity, but how do they do that? So WFP, the World Food Programme, is really about ensuring that we save lives and we change lives through food security. Because for us, food security is foundational. It's foundation to the well-being of society. It's foundational to families. It's foundational to functioning in, a, in the everyday world. It's, it's sort of the first building block to stability, to security. And so the World Food Program's mission is really about reaching everybody who does not have 
enough food or is hungry or is starving, whether they're caught in conflict or not. And the stark reality is that because of conflict, the numbers are through the roof. Because of of, um, COVID and the pandemic today, those numbers have gone even higher. And I mean, it's, it's really baffling that in a world where Amartya Sen, the former Nobel Prize winner, had said that there's no reason for famine, but we are in a world where there is famine. There is, there are countries, there are four countries today, Ruby, Yemen, South Sudan, Nigeria, and Burkina Faso in the Sahel, who are facing famine-like conditions. So in a world where there's enough food to feed everyone, that equation doesn't make any sense. So because of conflict, WFP is really at the forefront of trying to help everyone. How does conflict um, impact food security? Well, the top three world food crises today are because of conflict. So I don't know if you you remember, but you and I spoke over the weekend and I had spent some time this summer in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That is the 22 million people there on the precipice of starvation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible. And that is because of conflict. That is because of of fighting within the country, but also the pressure that the country is under. So conflict is one of the drivers of food insecurity. One of the things we think about the weekend about... um, the Democratic Republic of Congo is it's actually one of the most fertile areas to grow foods. That's and yet, it. Um, extreme famine. How, how does that work? Exactly. So I was astounded when I was there that how green it is, how beautiful in terms of vegetation, you can drop something and it will grow. So that's not the problem. But yet, as soon as you leave a particular area like the hotel where I was staying in, um, and you go out onto the streets, there are children begging, but not just one or two ruby, like it's hundreds and hundreds. They crowd around your car just as you try to move to the traffic lights. It's so sad. It's so sad. And it doesn't make any sense. But the reason that happens is is for a number of things, but mainly because of um, infrastructure, the lack of infrastructure. So there are no the roads. There are no real roads that allow cars to pass or in our case, for us to be able to transport food and get them from farm to market. They don't have the systems in place for the storage, for the um, to be able to keep food and preserve food in a way that you can get it to market and, and, and move it through to people. So that entire infrastructure that sits across a food system, supply chains, production, um, delivery, that's weak, weak if not non-existent. And so that's a huge part of it. But one of the reasons why it's so weak is because the conflict doesn't allow for for those systems to be stood up. And that's it's in those circumstances that WFP comes in. So we have trucks, we have planes, we have boats, we have trains. We do what it takes in terms of standing up a supply chain to reach people. In places like South Sudan, it's actually a matter of flying in food and dropping it. Because people are at war, you can't land, and there's no other way. Hugely expensive, but that's, we do what it takes to get to them. Rebecca, do you think that there's a role for technology to solve some of these problems? 
Um, I mean, obviously, you've talked about, you know, planes and trucks and lack of infrastructure uh, causing lack of access is clearly one of the big, you know, blockers to creating food security. But is there a place for technology to solve some of these problems or do you think it's beyond technology? No, I think the future is technology. I think if we don't have technology at the heart of our solutions around hunger, we're not going to reach them. And and the reason I say this, Ruby, is because the world has also changed. You know, if you look at the way the World Food Programme was working, say, 20, 30 years ago, it was the simple effort of taking wheat in a bag and moving it in a truck from A to B. Today, we're talking about being able to um, reach people through um, a credit card, you know, or that you can buy food at the supermarket. I was I was in Amman Three years ago, I lived in the Middle East for five years working on the Syria crisis response. And you re- you will remember from the from the news that refugees and Syrian refugees spilled over into Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq and Turkey. So my office was the office that was supposed to support the coordination of the World Food Programme's response in those neighbouring countries in Syria itself. I was the head of the sub-regional office there. And I would go on a Saturday morning with the kids, I put my baby on the back and get into the car with Lily and head to Carrefour. Mm-hmm. And I would stand in a queue with my basic food and there would no doubt be a, a refugee in front of me or behind me with her card to get her basic food. And that was a WFP card where we had uploaded money onto the card that allows her to buy her basic food for the week. So, it's all technology-based. Yes, no, well, I think there's two extremes. There's like, how do you get food into a country? And that could be like one set of technology solutions. And then the other extreme where is where there is access to food, but the people are displaced as refugees. And then they need to be able to have the buying power, if you like, to you know, to shop for their family. And so that was like, like you were saying, that's the World Food Programme provided credit cards for those, for those people. Is that how it worked? Yes, it it's um, a cash card. So maybe not so much a credit card, but a cash card. But behind that, Ruby, is the whole technology around understanding who's vulnerable and who isn't. Who needs it and who doesn't? You need to do an assessment. You need to understand where they are and who they are. And today, technology plays an incredible role in that, especially in in conflict countries, because many of the people we can't reach Mm -hmm. um, in places like Venezuela, for example, we have to assess the levels of vulnerability through different means. That could be through through interviews. but it could also be through using drones to be able to see where people are in places like Somalia or the Sahel, where you can't reach them. But by using satellite imagery, you're able to see movements and presence. So technology is incredibly powerful. I do think it's it's going to be the future for us because with cash, you have a buying power mm-hmm. and you're able to to instill and, and drive a kind of economic empowerment of a family that also brings dignity. And that's really important because you must you must be able to del- deliver food in a way that's dignified, also so that you don't create tensions between refugees and host communities. 
Um, so there's a number of things that the role of technology that helps sort of even quell tensions. And that's where the Nobel Prize is really important because we never talk about the fact that food security can actually contribute to social cohesion. Food security can actually play an important role through the, with the use of technology in keeping things calm or even stopping um, tensions from rising. Right, right. And those uses of technology that we talked about were around food access and uh, access to food. What about um, the application of technology for food development or nutrition? Is there, um, are there applications there? Absolutely. It's, it's critical. So the thing to remember with food security is that it's not just about receiving food. It's really about nutritious food. It's really about the right types of food. And importantly, in the countries that we're working, we often forget that the people that we're trying to reach are the most vulnerable uh, have been in that situation for 20, 30 years. I mean, there are generations being born into refugee camps in Kenya, for example, the Dab camp is one of the oldest camps, and you, you've got kids who were born there and going through school there. So the first thousand days of a child's life is the most important. If they do not have sufficient food in those first thousand days, then they miss out on huge opportunities later because they have not been able to develop in a way that they can really maximize their potential in society. So if you look at some of the countries in which you work where 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 there's insufficient food, it's about the nutrition. It's about getting nutritious food to children and to mothers, especially pregnant mothers who are breastfeeding, so that they're able to, to maintain a level of nutrition for their children. And also for later, you know, just in terms of being able to be healthy um, and to, to be able to deal with obesity, for example. Obesity is another result of the lack of adequate nutrition. So, the role of technology there is incredibly important, not just in being able to um, educate. There's a huge learning potential around the role of technology um, and ability to reach people. There was one fantastic app that was put together by uh, one of our staff members in Senegal, where we were able to teach mothers the importance of breastfeeding, but also teach them what types of food they needed to be feeding their children and how to put it together, you know, add water, add, add, um, add milk and the quantities, because they don't know this. Like they're really in this situation where they're just not able to understand how to feed and what to feed. And if they don't have milk, then that child has nothing in some of these circumstances. And was that um, education delivered for an, an app, an actual phone yes. app? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was education delivered through a phone app and, and done pictorially because many of the people don't, they don't have, they have their own language or ethnic type of language. So to communicate, you have to make it visual, which is why an app is really quite, quite effective because they can click through and see what they need to do and where they need to go. Um, and it's it's an education process. Um, it's really important. But also just on that, Ruby, it's important to say that in some other countries, another side of the technology realm, but related to food security, is the link to climate change. Mm. And I want to mention that because along with conflict, climate, is, climate change is a, a really important driver of food insecurity. So farmers, for example, we have a huge piece of work around technology where they can have an alert system 
for when there's going to be rain or no rain, which was going to affect their crops. And so how's that, that technology that? Is that an app or how, how does that work? Yes, it, it's not just an app, but it's also um, being able to provide that weather insurance, um, that weather information that allows them to plan for their crops, mm. right, but also to protect their crops. It's also linked to things like an insurance scheme. So being able to provide insurance for the farmers so that they're protected when things get really bad, um, it changes their lives. They're able to even harvest their crops a bit earlier because they know that the rains are going to come earlier. They can store it and they can protect their families during the difficult seasons. So it builds the resilience of a family. And that's all down to technology. And are those developed by the World Food Programme or does the World Food Programme partner with companies, with industry? How does it work? It's critical to partnering with industry. It's critical to partnering with the private sector. In fact, the solutions are not solutions that we necessarily come up with. You know, we're very much based on um, suggestions and innovation that comes from the private sector and comes to us and says, look, we can help you with this. And then we work with it, we take it on board, we try to scale it up. And when the financing comes, we're able we're able to move. So the, the truth is that a lot of the innovation and these solutions don't happen inside WFP. They happen outside and they help us. So it's, it's really the importance of partnership. So the success of the World Food Programme is not ourselves. It's really about fundamentally working with others who can help us. And so if, we, um, if there are companies that have developed solutions to address aspects of food security, are there ways that they can with the World Food Programme? How, how would that work? Well, we have a private sector team in WFP in Rome, and there are different avenues. We also have a fabulous office in, in Munich, in Germany, which is the Innovation Centre. And that's where you can bring in solutions and they bring the problems that we face at country level and try to connect with private sector to come up with a solution and see how we can we can roll it out. Um, and that's that's really powerful. Um, another one, Ruby, just in terms of tech that suddenly come to my mind, it's really about helping youth and children with employment. You know, so Syrian refugees who are sitting in a camp in Iraq can't go anywhere, but they are smart. They've got educate. They've got degrees, but war has meant that they are completely trapped. So, through some of the innovative solutions that were developed, we can help them work through computer programming. And by computer programming from even a, a tent, they're able to get a small income and connect to a company that gives them a huge amount of hope beyond um, their sort of day-to-day. So that's a, that was another sort of solution. A lot of our audience are um, entrepreneurs who have access to capital, who have access to um, different technologies and engineers to build solutions. What could we do better? What are we not doing enough of? What could we do better and what are we not doing enough of? I'm going to start with the second question, Ruby. We're not doing enough of connecting them to us and to people and really to where the action is. 
I think there are a lot of blocks, a lot of barriers, and I know there's a huge amount of goodwill and interest, but somehow we're missing the connection in the middle. Like if I hadn't had the opportunity to talk to you and to know you and to have this huge privilege of your audience, um, it wouldn't happen, right? And it's a, it's a real shame because somehow the, world, the Nobel Prize has shone a spotlight on the work of WFP. And we do try. We put a little bit of money into communications, but it's tiny. We don't make the effort. But now suddenly we have this huge opportunity. So, so my, my appeal is get to know us and, and really get to know the people. But if you have the chance to make contact into some of the countries we work in, we work in 80 countries over 80 countries, I think it's probably 82 or 83 countries now, we have 18,000 employees. And I think through the work of, of your audience, you can connect directly through to people's lives through the World Food Programme. And that's unique because we have that reach. We're in places that nobody else is in. And you'll be working with companies and governments who through your connections, you can get to us. So I'd really say know us, and come in with a creative mind and help us find the solutions because the the world that we're trying to sort of tackle, the problem we're trying to tackle is huge. We have a $5 billion shortfall today, Ruby. Like that's the money we need just to reach a fraction of the number that are hungry. So if we're going to make a dent in these numbers and really do our job, it's only going to be through partnership with tech companies, with health tech companies, with the private sector who can help us get to where we want to be. We can't, we don't have the breath to be able to do what we need to do unless we partner with you. And then what, what do you think we should be building? Like what should these amazing tech and health tech entrepreneurs be building? What are the sorts of solutions that could address some of the issues that you face? So some of the solutions would be about bringing technology to some of the real life situations that we face, and they vary. You've got to remember that it's not a one size fits all. Every country is different. Every region is different. And understanding the kind of pressures and the dynamics, especially around conflict at a community level, is going to be different. So the beauty for me of, of tech companies is their flexibility. The, ability, the amazing ability to adapt and create solutions that fit in different contexts. So that's that's going to be important. I think the other thing that's important is um, coming in with an open mind. The UN, and I've always wanted to work for the UN, it was my dream, but I have to be honest, we're a little bit old school in our structures and our systems. We're not as cool as you guys. So you have to be patient with us, but you have to help us move into the 21st, 22nd century in a way that we can do our jobs better. So come in with an open mind in terms of learning. But I think that you guys are going to be the ones who can build the solutions that are going to actually save us money. Because if I if I look today at things like the nutritional issue, Ruby, like for us to reach some of these mothers and give them the um, nutrition that they need for their kids, we are buying products from companies in Europe and flying them into Africa in packaging, for example, of, of nutritious products that look a little bit like peanut butter so that they can open it and feed their children directly into the mouth where they don't need water, they don't need a stove, they don't need fire. They can just do it directly. 
I mean, guys, you've got to tell me there's a better way because the cost around flying something from Paris to Burkina Faso is, is, is immense. So help us think through those solutions that are going to save us money because every dollar we save means we can get to another child. Rebecca, your career has been amazing. I feel um, when I was telling my family who obviously remember you um, about the Nobel, Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, my sisters who are both physicians said, oh my God, that's the, the ultimate in career achievements. Again, I have to tell you how proud of you I am. Um, I'm in awe of your career and your accomplishments and your contributions to humanity. What would be your advice to your 20-year-old self? My advice to my 20-year-old self would be be fearless and go against the grain if it's what your heart is telling you. Go for it. I think that's the advice I would get. I had so many fears that held me back on a number of occasions. It's wonderful to talk to you now about and to see where things have gone. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but at that time, it didn't feel it didn't feel cool. It didn't feel cool and it, it was kind of tough. And there are times I thought, oh, I'm never going to see my friends again. I'm not going to see my family. I'm never going to meet a nice guy. I'm never going to get married. <laughs> So I think I would tell my 20-year-old self, don't worry about it. As long as you do something you love, even if it's not quite what everybody else thinks you should do, it's okay. So if there was any message that you could give health tech and tech entrepreneurs, what would it be? What's your parting wisdom to them? My parting wisdom is step up now. Step up now because we've been waiting for you guys and we need you at the table. We need you to help us figure this out. It's not easy. It's complicated. Um, and so come in, give us a call and, and let's get moving because the numbers are really big and they're just rising every day because of the pandemic. Um, and if anyone can help us to change that dial, it's going to be you guys. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much. It's been such an incredible hour that we've spent together. You amaze me, you humble me, and I'm so incredibly proud to be your friend, and thank you.